welcome to the Fat Emperor podcast. I'm your host, Ivor Cummins. 24th November, and I'm here today with Malcolm Kendrick, Dr. Malcolm Kendrick. And he has exposed so much of the corporate corruption on cholesterol, fat, statins, all the madness over the past few years. And he's also been commenting since last April on the viral issue. So today we're going to talk around some of this current madness. So great to see you again, Malcolm. Hello, good good afternoon, I think it is now. Yeah. <laughs> you lose track nowadays. <laughs> Don't even know what day it is. Yeah, it's kind of mad. I, I've been seven days a week on this since April, so but it still isn't taxing me because it's a labor of love to uh to kind of expose the realities around this thing that's turning the world upside down. But, you know, I thought today you did a whole bunch of super blog posts and maybe we go back towards the start where I think you began to talk about quality adjusted life years and being realistic about what we can spend to destroy society in order to, to potentially save lives. But I think we know from the studies now the lockdown ideology actually has shown to not really save much anyway. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, I did a couple of very early blogs saying, well, what should you do to protect yourself against uh, COVID? When I mentioned vitamin D and everyone shouted at me, um, I mentioned hydroxychloroquine. I didn't realize how far that was that was going to go. I mentioned vitamin C and various other things, many of which are, are now reluctantly coming. But the, the one that caused a bit of a stir was right at the start. Well, I think about my third blog on it, where I said, well, you have to look at it from a perspective of, you know, if you're going to spend, and at that time, no one knew how much we were going to spend, but you could estimate 350 billion pounds in the UK on um, on COVID. Well, I sort of looked at it and thought, well, that's fine, but that's an awful, awful, awful lot of money. I mean, the entire NHS costs 120 billion a year. So that's three times the entire spend of the NHS on one disease and one disease alone. Can that possibly be worth it? Can we afford to do this? And I looked at it and, and I knew this was going to cause a lot of problems because there's enough, a lot of people don't like the idea that human life can be given any sort of price. It's like it's beyond price. But I mean, they have decided in the UK and other countries, you have to look and say, well, what can we afford on, on interventions? And a figure has been created. You can... You can argue that figure, but it is great. It's around about £30,000 or about $40,000 per what they call a quality life year. One year of perfect quality life, the National Health Service will spend £30,000 on that. Now, even just saying that causes problems. But then I thought, well, OK, so we have decided this because we know if we're going to spend all this money on COVID, we're not going to spend it on other things. Now, I've, I've, watched, I've watched two men who were being treated for cancer, whose treatment stopped, who then died. So I've witnessed people dying as a result of COVID. So, you know, it's not appropriate just to say, well, we, we just spent every amount of money that it costs because there cannot be a limit on it because we must just spend and spend because a life is worth an infinite amount. That's, it's, it's a point that some people have, but it, it can't really be agreed with. So I looked at it and I thought, well, if it's 350 billion pounds, and according to the original fear mongering of 500 and whatever it was, thousand deaths, I think it was 520,000 deaths. And we knew already at that time that the average age of death was well over 80. In fact, it's 82.4 or something now. So how much longer would somebody live if they didn't get COVID? And you can calculate this in different ways, but essentially what it came down to was that, that, that the best we could achieve was to save one year of life was going to cost us about 150,000 pounds if we spent 350 billion pounds trying to keep 500,000 people alive but of course they're not going to live for terribly much longer because an awful lot of them were unwell and very elderly so at that cost I had to say well you know what we have to look at this again and say you can't destroy the economy as we're doing you can't rip apart society you can't spend three times what the national health service is spending on one disease to achieve what you're aiming to achieve and even at the worst case scenario it, it was difficult to justify it and this is not just a money versus life argument which some people 
have, have, have put it into. This is a life versus life argument. Because we already know the other problem is that a lot of people didn't attend hospital with heart attacks. They estimate from the from the Office of National Statistics was six to 12,000 excess deaths from cardiovascular disease over this period. And, and the Office of National Statistics have also calculated that the impact on the economy is likely to cause 17,500 excess deaths every year for the next five years, which is, these are their figures, these are not my figures. This is 80,000 deaths, which is far more deaths than we've already had from COVID. So it's not one versus the other. It's, it just isn't. But even if it is one, just one versus the other, it's still just very difficult to justify doing it. So I thought, well, someone's got to try and say this, even though I knew I'd be viciously attacked, and I was, but I put it out there. And I think the argument's even more valid now than it was at the time. Yeah, and you know, Mark, I saw it at the time, and I, I pumped it out there as much as possible and, and clarified the same points, that there is a price for what you will pay to extend a life year. Otherwise, the whole world would collapse. Of course there is. Otherwise, you could spend, I don't know, a billion on a program to save someone with a rare disease or get them an extra year of life. You could spend a billion, but then you'd kill an enormous amount of people by, by using that billion. So it's obvious, but I agree, not too many. And the thing about the numbers is, and I, I like to say this in simple terms, Imperial College said 500,000 approximately. We know for an actual fact that they were out by a factor of 10 or more. So the 50,000 who did pass are, are who was going to pass anyway. And the lockdown came after the curve had turned. Professor Carl Hennigan flagged that in April. And we know from 22 published analyses that there's essentially no correlation between lockdown, lockdown stringency and mortality per million. So, and Peru had the military lockdown with mandatory masks. And months later, the inevitable happened anyway, seasonally, regionally, and they're the worst in the world, etc., etc. So we actually know, insofar as you can know anything in science, nothing is 100% proven. We know lockdown made almost no impact to mortality. That's a fact. We know that England had, say, 50K. That was always going to be approximately the case. So they really saved no lives. So it's all cost with no real benefit. So theoretically, it's almost infinite, the cost per quality saved. Oh, absolutely. I mean, yes, as you say, when you look at lockdown and you look at the countries that locked down the tightest and the countries that didn't lock down, it, you can't see the, any positive impact from lockdown whatsoever. I mean, this was an experiment. You know, normally if you're going to do in science, if you're going to do something, you first of all say, let's see if it might work. So you'd get two groups, you'd lock down one, you wouldn't lock down the other, you'd wait some time. I mean, this is an experiment that's almost impossible to do just because the logistics are, are gigantic. But then you just say, well, we're going, this has never been done before, ever, that we lock down healthy people. And now we're going to do it. And we say it's going to work. And then we have no evidence that it works, but we keep doing it. It is, it is you know, uh, it's not actually his quote, but Albert Einstein is said to have quoted is the definition of insanity to keep doing the same thing and expect different results. But this is where we're at, yes. I mean, lockdown, if lockdown was going to work, you really would need to really lock people in their houses and allow absolutely no possible contact between people. That's just not achievable. That would, that would mean people couldn't go to hospital because most of the infections, as I understand it, occurred in the hospital setting anyway. So ill people are always going to hospital and doctors are going to hospital and then people are coming out of hospital. You, you cannot lock down a country. And as soon as you can't lock it down that tightly, infection is bound to spread. And, and in fact, you could say the more people are locked down, the more they're stuck in their houses, the more they're interacting with each other in small and enclosed environments, the worse things will, will be. So, I mean, just there are all sorts of ways of looking at this, as you say. What on earth are we doing? What are we doing? It is the most insane period in my lifetime, and I'm 30 years in technical leadership, and everything, almost everything I've seen being done is unscientific. It's actually profoundly unscientific, and yet it keeps happening. I, I was saying back in early May, 
I put out a uh, root cause type sheet. It's evidence for against sheet. You must use them in complex problems. And you put a hypothesis up and you might have 10 hypotheses. But in this case, the hypothesis that locking down gives a benefit over Sweden's uh, 2019 WHO guidelines. So actually, this is a quick point. People mightn't realize the October 2019 WHO guidelines, 100 pages plus, has gathered together decades of understanding of influenza-like pandemics. And they are brutally clear in that document. No quarantine of exposed individuals is recommended. Never mind locking down the whole country of healthy people. They don't even cover that because it's too ridiculous until China said to do it. But they're the recommendations. Sweden simply followed the WHO time-honored recommendations for pandemics. They didn't do anything funny. But then you switch and you say, well, okay, what about these new medieval type ideology superstition? Lockdown will do something. That became so clear in the evidence sheet. We had several published papers by May. Woods Hole Institute, a German university. We had the Lancet in June. The Lancet. That lockdown did not correlate at all with, with uh, mortality. And all the data was coming in. But then I'd add to it the observational reality, the logic. So we know there's grocery workers in Ireland, UK, and 4 million in the US in the Grocery Workers Union. They were not locked down. They had no masks and they were indoors right through the actual epidemic. Never mind now. And there was no signal for infection or death. I mean... They were not locked down. They were a perfect kind of natural experiment, not a pure control. But they stayed exposed to the great unwashed coming in and out from their tight little houses where they're spreading it. Those guys were all flowing into the essential shops. And the workers were there eight hours a day, indoors, no masks, bit of plastic screens and stupid stuff. And nothing happened. They proved all on their own that lockdown really did not move the needle, just like all the published papers. And all this was coming out and obvious. And here we are now in November, in lockdown. Well, it's, um, I think we, we discussed this briefly before coming on air. And when, as I said, if you, if you decide you're going down one route and then you go down it, once you've decided that and you're already halfway down it or three quarters of the way down it, it becomes incredibly difficult to tap people on the shoulder and go, guys, I'm sorry, but just stop, turn around, come back, have another think, see what you're going to do. It, it, you know, I, I, some, I have a pint in my time that some people would rather, would rather die than admit they were wrong. And um, especially when it comes to reputations and, and there's so much has been, just so much has been thrown into this. So much has been invested in it. it, it, it you know, I think the, the financial advisors will always tell you the hardest thing is to get people out of a situation where they have been going down in the wrong route for years, which they just hang on. It's a bit like gamblers, you know. I'm going to gamble because I will, I will start winning eventually. It's like, no, you won't. You're gambling. You're going to lose. You've already lost for the last five years. You're not going to win by doing the same thing for the next five years. Stop now. But, boy, once people have got this into their heads, trying to get them to stop, turn around and go, uh, oh, sorry, guys, because that's the other thing, isn't it? Oh, terribly sorry. I know we've destroyed the economy. I know we've been shouting at everybody to do these things, but you know what? Mm, sorry, um, wrong. Just, you know, that's not the sort of thing the average politician is going to do, is it? And, and equally, all these experts, these experts on something that's never happened before are not going to ever turn around and say, oh, you know what? Sorry about that. A sort of mistake. I realize the sort of mistake any idiot could make. We've made it. It, it has become more kind of trapped in this. You know, we're heading. You ever read the poem, The Charge of the Light Fight, the, the Light Brigade, where, where they, there's cannons to the left of them, there's cannons to the right of them. But by God, they're going to charge because that's what they have decided they're going to do. And they charge up this valley against the cannons, and they're all blown to smithereens. And then there's a film about it where one guy's jumping around saying, we can't do this, we're all going to die. And everyone just goes, no, we are the cavalry. We are going to charge. And they are blown into smithereens. That's the type of thinking, unfortunately, that we've got, isn't it? 
Yeah, we, we've blown our economy and, and population health. People say, oh, economy, money. But there's the socioeconomic uh, impacts on population health and they've destroyed them. Um, we've destroyed population health, mental health, societal health, you know, physical health in the case of cancer, heart attacks, suicides. I mean, yeah. they've, they've literally burnt down the house because there was an irksome flea flying around inside. I mean, the sledgehammer and nut were way past that analogy, way past that. I mean, I looked at also at, because uh, I, you know, my research on heart disease, I was looking at the Soviet Union in the late 1980s. And when the, um, when the, when the Soviet Union broke apart, the Berlin Wall came down. There was an enormous impact on, on mortality. If you look just at Russia, it's estimated that the impact of the economic catastrophe that was the breakup of the Soviet Union was five million deaths in the so in Russia alone over a four-year period, which would be the equivalent of 250 million deaths across the world if you scaled it up. So when people say, "Oh, the economy and health are," you know, you can't you can't look at money versus health. Well, you're not because health, unfortunately, health is money. Money is health, and if yes, the Soviet Union is a worse example. Um, because they were poor, poor to start with, and also the, the way that catastrophic destruction of people's savings and pensions and money, and and the, the kind of cowboy capitalism that took took over was particularly destructive. But there is no doubt that that you know I looked at a study from from Glasgow in Scotland, which was done by Michael Marmot, who studied the impact of social pressures on health. Two areas of Glasgow, three miles apart. One's rich, one was poor. The average difference in life expectancy for men at the time he looked was 28 years. And that's entirely down to the economic pressure and poverty. Yes, there were things they smoked more, they drank more, there was more drug taking, but when you can remove these things and the difference was still enormous. So for people to say, oh, it's okay to destroy the economy so long as we, we, we improve health, there's a, you are, you're going down together, guys. You know, you destroy the economy, it will drag down health. It will obliterate mental health. I was looking at a study from Argentina that showed that in Argentina, the average the number of people now diagnosed with, with high blood pressure coming into A&E has gone up by about 50% as a direct result of the stresses and strains of, of, of lockdown. And the economic pressures have gone on. Just was reading that paper this morning. And, you know, if the blood pressure goes up, there's other things going on. And, and your mortality rate over the next few years from that alone, from those problems alone, will be tens of thousands of people. You're not going to be able to directly link it and say they died because of lockdown. No one does this sort of thing. But I know that lockdown is killing people. And as you say, and is it protecting anyone? Well, where's the evidence for this? Please show the evidence that lockdown has saved a single life. You know, mask wearing, I drew a little graph just for my own amusement of France. I was over in France and then had to bloody self-isolate when coming back. Bastards. <laughs> but uh, on, they were wearing masks when I was out there. On August the 28th, they, you had to wear masks inside and outside. And the graph at that point, sort of August the 28th, and then it goes like this. And they're getting, they were getting like 70,000, whether they were real cases or not, so no completely issue but essentially you could say the moment they started wearing masks inside and out the rate of uh, COVID infections went through the roof you know as you say you, you do an analysis of things is well you know it's Karl Popper who was the original you know black swan hypothesis you can keep finding white swans as long as you like if your hypothesis is swans are white big deal all I need to do is find one black swan somewhere and your hypothesis is wrong you can find black swans in, in Australia, by the way. Uh, but I mean, in a way, it's not a, some people say, well, that's a ridiculous hypothesis, but it's not in science. If, if, if Newton dropped 100 apples and they hit the ground, he, if he dropped another one that went straight up in the air, you say, sorry, Newton, you're wrong. Something is causing this and it is not gravity. And, and again, if you can say that mask wearing protects against anything, well, here's countries putting masks on, at which point the rate of COVID is going through the roof. 
So you're wrong. You know, end up. Exactly. That that's why nothing's a hundred percent proven, but but once you get to ninety nine point nine nine, you're there, pretty much. And not only, as you say, Malcolm, you put in masks and it goes up, like Peru and countless other countries. Um, but we've also got masks going in as it's falling down, and the curve keeps falling with no change. So so from every side you have black swans. The sky is black with swans on lockdown and masks. It's just incredible. There's not a single shred of of credible support. And recently the Danish mask study came out, and I know it was only looking at wearing a mask, does it protect you? But the answer is no. No surprise. All the data points, verifies the mask is kind of a waste of time, which agrees with the last four decades of RCTs and science published on masks and viral transmission. So it agrees with all the past two. So not only have you got your de facto proof, but it also agrees with everything from the history of science, which is nice to see. You've got all of that against what? A couple of associational and mechanistic papers drummed up in June 2020 that if you read them, they're quite clearly biased. And that overturned everything. So it's it. I think we're back, though, to what you said is once you... Once the mo- the mob or the crowd stampede, including academics and all those people, they can't stop themselves, and and they doubly can't stop themselves because it's not just a matter of stopping the stampede and kind of brushing yourself off and walking away. You don't get to walk away. The politicians and these experts, right? They have ruined society across all of Europe and m- most of the world, so they can't say sorry. It's un- it's too big to fail. Too big to fail for them. They can never admit they were wrong. So that's what makes it inexorable. The madness must continue. Well, yes, it does. I mean, it is, uh, I like to use a couple of quotes on um, sort of people getting trapped with ideas. And one of my, one of my favorites is uh, Max Planck, who's um, the funeral, uh, sorry, science proceeds one funeral at a time. And the underlying thinking there is that you, you, once you've got an expert and they've got an opinion, it ain't never going to change. It's just always going to be the same. It's only when a new generation grows up that that idea goes away. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the film Inception, which I think is a great film. But um, um, the, the, the sort of strap line is that the most, uh, the, most resilient, uh, the most resilient parasite is an idea. And, um, and I think that's the problem. Once you've stuck this idea in people's minds, COVID is absolutely deadly. It's, it's a complete killer. Um, it's very difficult to shift that. And once you've said masks must be worn, masks are worn. You know, people must socially distance, people must socially distance. And part of the problem is these ideas have a certain, um, what I call fast thinking attraction as well, is that, that they seem like they should work. If you don't understand anything about science or how things work, uh, as I keep saying to people I meet, science is very often counterintuitive. You know, it just, uh, I use an example I use it quite a lot, probably too much, but I maybe not used it here. But in the 1950s, after a heart attack, well, I actually started before that, but in the 1950s in America, after a heart attack, the rule was strict bed rest. You lay in bed for six weeks because obviously once you've had a heart attack, you need to rest the heart. You mustn't put strain on it. It must be protected. Now, if you think about that for about five seconds, that sounds like a great idea. There's a guy called Bernard Lowen, and he's a hero of mine, and he was working in the hospitals at that time. And he and his uh, mentor, I've forgotten his name, Sinclair, I think it was, they decided they would try to sit men up at the end of the bed, not lie them down, just even sit them up, because lying in bed was making them despair, was making them psychologically really upset. And as we know now, was actually making them die from heart disease and, and pulmonary embolisms. And it was absolutely the worst thing you could possibly do. But they got them and they sat them up at the end of bed, uncomfortable bed, just so they could be up and looking around and be a bit like a normal human being. And the interns in the hospital there were sent through. When he arrived on his ward one day, they lined up and gave him a Nazi salute and shouted, Zeke Heil, claiming that what he was doing was worse than what Hitler had done in the concentration camps. Such was the absolute attack on this guy 
for trying to do what you thought was and was the right thing. Now, I have estimated that strict bed rest, which was used around the world from the year 1912, by the way, probably killed 100 million men, mainly men, prematurely. And yet when this, this hero tried to change this, he was met with people giving him a Nazi salute on the wards. And then later on, the interns carried a coffin around his unit with the words killer plastered on one side of it. This is to give you some idea of how how much, what you're up against here psychologically. It, it is not a small thing to take on or challenge people. If you dare to say masks don't work, I'm sure there'll be people there saying, you're killing people. Don't you care about other people? The emotional driver here is incredibly powerful and the anger is enormous. And, and, and you know, you're up against that, aren't you? you you'll get that, <laughs> I get that, which is, which is almost incandescent rage when you dare to suggest that these ideas are not right. And in fact, may well be causing far more harm than good. I should be standing up and saying, you're the killers because I've watched people dying of cancer. I've watched people, I've watched elderly people die of Alzheimer's disease, unable to be visited by their relatives. I've seen the enormous harm and impact of harm that has been caused. This is not some one way street where you have the moral superiority. People are dying. I've watched them die in front of my eyes. Because if you're stupid lockdown and your stupid insistence on doing this damage to people, it's not us that should be defending our position. It's you. And that is where, you know, it's probably as emotional as I've got about this. But it is like that. This is not you guys are the caring concerned people and anyone criticizing you as a potential killer you are killing people out there this is and it needs to stop absolutely i mean it's it's negligence criminal negligence and i use that word advisedly i think the stupidity at this stage even if you allow for the intuitive oh but it should work it's it's criminal and if you take the example of suicide alone and here's the absurdity i was telling someone this morning so in ireland as an example but it's going to be similar everywhere so we had around 800 deaths possibly but all cause mortality in the first six months when we had the epidemic was not different than prior years so they weren't really but 800 let's say covid mainly early passings usually by a few months that, if you take even six months average qualies or, or, or even ordinary life years, that's 400 life years. And that's being massively generous. That's like around 15 suicides of people in their 40s and 50s. I know of five or six directly myself suicides connected to lockdown. We won't get the numbers for a year or two because the coroner and all. But we know from the grapevine there are loads of suicides even family suicides there were three triple suicides uh, in the newspapers but there's all the individual ones so suicide driven by lockdown alone will outweigh quality life years uh, for corona for covid19 that's suicide then you got the heart attacks and you got the long term many years of cancer deaths i mean the cost in human health it could be a hundred times more suffering and death that lockdown causes then ever saves if indeed it really saves any and these people get sanctimonious about granny the other thing malcolm that drives me insane is i know a research group and also this was published in the british medical journal back in july they did an analysis and actually they came to the conclusion that lockdown will probably cause more covid deaths in the long run and it's because of the relative mobility of the uh, susceptible and aged versus the healthy working age. If you lock down the healthy, which they've done, then the relative mobility of the elderly, right, increases compared to people who won't be affected. And without getting into the complexity, you actually cause less community immunity that would protect granny next winter. And you get a higher COVID death toll. And add to that a hundred times that, that, which is all the other stuff we mentioned. So these guys 
are either stupid or evil. But that's the only choice for this one. If you promote lockdown, you're either stupid or evil. And you got to sit down and decide which you are. Well, guys, if you want to see all of the facts from the top experts come out in a movie that's entertaining and explains everything, then hopefully you can support us on our Kickstarter. Myself and Donal O'Neill, if you enable us through Kickstarter, the link is tinyurl, the COVID chronicles, all one word. So again, we can't do it if you don't help us to do it. Thank you. Yeah. Well, I think I'm going for stupid. But um, mm. I think there's some people who are not necessarily stupid on this. But, you know, I mean, you know, looking at other issues in a couple of cases, because it was when it was at its peak, I was looking after elderly people in a couple of nursing homes and a couple of whom got quite ill. And I wanted to get them into hospital. And the ambulance service was de facto virtually told, if you think it might be COVID, they're not coming in. It was never written down, but, well, maybe it was written down. If it was, I didn't see it. But essentially, you just couldn't get ill elderly people into hospital. In this case, I managed to get two in by jumping up and down and getting very angry. And, and it turned out that neither of them had COVID. They both had sepsis and they both died. So they could have been saved, you know. And again, and I don't want to bang on too much, but we, we did, we, you know, what's, what's the edict of medicine? First, do no harm. First, do no harm. And yet we are harming people. You know, if you had a drug that killed 5% of people you gave it to, you wouldn't be allowed to give it. We have an activity which is lockdown, which is killing a high percentage of people, and yet we're still doing it. You know, if I was a doctor, you'd be struck off. Do you realize your actions cause the death of all these people? Oh, well, I thought I was saving people. Yes, that's not good enough. You know, first of all, you have to be saving people. And, and then, you know, no, sorry, first of all, you have to be not harming people. That's your number one requirement in medicine, you know. So I, I just, you know, I know everyone's reinforcing everybody else and, and they all go, well, and lockdown's the most wonderful thing. And, you know, I, I'm part of medical groups that discuss things online. And the, the attitude of the vast majority of doctors is we're not locked down. We're not locking down hard enough. We're not restricting people enough. We're not wearing enough masks. We're not doing enough. We're, we need to do more and more and more. That is the opinion of the vast percentage, the vast majority of the medical profession. And, and, and they, they have no more idea of what they're talking about than the man on the street when it comes to this. But they are absolutely certain that we should be doing more of this and harder and longer and whatever. I mean, so they're all, if you like, comforting each other. Yeah, it's an enormous groupthink and an enormous cognitive dissonance and an incredible uh, unscientific way of approaching a problem. That's what drove me crazy since April. I mean, we said it's going to go through an influenza type curve in Northern Europe and it's going to be gone in the summer. And I remember poignantly telling people in late April, guys, Carl Hennigan just came out and showed that the lockdown came after the curve turned, just like we said it would. Italy as well, the lockdown came after the curve turned. Uh, we know the impact is going to be 10 times less than Imperial because we have the Diamond Princes and we have the Chinese data. And even in Italy, like 98.6% had one or multiple comorbidities and the average age was in the sky. So I said this thing by May, when the ICUs empty out, and the deaths stop, they're going to be looking around feeling sheepish, but they'll probably pretend that they made things better with their lockdown, but they didn't. And I thought this thing will fall apart. And here we are. They managed to get to the winter resurgence that we said would happen many, many months ago. They managed to put in mandatory masks in the middle of the summer when nothing was happening and clearly nothing would happen until around October, November, where normal things would happen, right? Sad, but normal. Same as 18, same as 2015, no different. But they managed to get to the winter by putting in mandatory masks and keeping an air of pandemic alive for many, many months. And to be honest, Malcolm, I must admit I only got one thing wrong on this. I could not believe back in May that they could manage to keep this thing going in Europe until they get to the winter where they'll start getting a bit of ICU. I said, that's impossible. The media are going to be going crazy by July. 
What happened in July is they brought in mandatory masks and the media didn't say anything. Yeah, I think that's been quite extraordinary, the lack of any um, significant questioning or income. I mean, especially in the UK, we have the, the, the BBC, which is supposed to be this fantastic independent organisation, but they appear to become cheerleaders um, for, the, for the government. Um, the opposition, who just seem to want to do more, their only criticism is, you haven't done enough. Yeah, I mean, I was saying to people in, 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 in May, this is over. This is finished. Yeah. I said it might come back next winter, but for now it's gone. And, yeah. people, and it had gone and it was gone, as you're right. And um, yeah, as you say, quite extraordinary. <laughs> like, they, you know, they, they, they kept the momentum going and they managed to push forward. And now here we are. With, you know, yeah. I mean, if you look at Europe, it's, it's fascinating, isn't it? That a number of countries have had no increase in overall mortality at all. Not in March, not in April, not May, not now. And, and others have, 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 have gone mad. And you see, that the, the most mad, uh, it, it's impossible to establish what, what has actually happened. But this terrible virus that must have spread across countries like, say, Austria, must have spread across countries like Greece, has had no impact on their mortality rate whatsoever. You know, Hungary. Uh, hmm. No, I mean, Norway said, oh, they locked down. But I was looking at pictures of, Norway in the summer and all charging about the beaches and playing basketball in the water and whatever. <laughs> nothing happened. Nothing has happened. They just that, nothing happened. It, that's it, it, it's stunning. And that's another crucial point that Sweden people say, oh, they distance naturally. Get out and walk. CNN went in in May and there were elderly ladies getting their hair cut, no masks with the person all around their face. I'm saying, oh, well, you know, yeah, maybe I'll catch it. And one meter distance, stay at home if you're sick, and the cafes are all open, and you can see people queuing with no masks. And the point is, they just followed the WHO 2019 October guidelines very well, actually. They did the best job in Europe because they followed the science. Everyone else went mad. But, I mean, like you say, Sweden, with no lockdown, has no signal for excess mortality in this respiratory season, right? When you account for, they have 16% they've more elderly, high age bracket than two years ago. And when you account for, you know, the dry tinder of their soft 19 season, just some basic scientific uh, correct correction. And you see, they essentially, nothing really happened. Although a lot of people were badged with SARS-CoV-2, and in fairness, the virus was the cause of many people's passing. But the impact's not there. Ireland, first six months of the year, we had the epidemic. It's no different in all-cause mortality than the previous five years. In fact, April in Ireland, the peak, is no higher in all-cause mortality than January in 2017 and January in 2018. It matches. Well, it's low. It's lower in a number of European countries uh, and this year. But I mean, yeah, I mean, the other thing, of course, that we haven't discussed, which which I still think is, is something I went mad about initially, is that, that, you know, who is vulnerable, the elderly with multimorbidities, who really should we have not given this disease to if you wanted them not to die was the elderly with multiple morbidities. But in the action of lockdown, which includes clearing out all the hospitals, I mean, our local hospital was was echoing and empty for about two months which no one seems to be willing to admit that, you know, that really, really we're clapping over here, we're clapping the NHS and saying, well, most of the NHS was sitting around twiddling their thumbs for about three months. And yet what we did was we said, well, we, you know, we've got to clear the hospitals out. So you're going to clear the hospitals out. Where are you going to send most of your patients? Well, they're going to get sent to care homes, which is what happened. So we, we seeded the care homes with COVID-19 in, 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 in units that were then became, you know, I called it incubators. We, we created, you know, 10,000 incubators around the country. And so, so realistically, we should have done the opposite. We should have stopped this from happening. So I think 50% of the excess deaths in the UK were in care homes. And that was caused by lockdown. You know, direct and absolutely was caused by lockdown. Had we kept the elderly in the hospitals, which were never overwhelmed, None of that would not have happened. So we, we actually 
just straight off at least 50% of the excess. And Sweden admit they did the same. They cleared out the hospitals and stuck an awful lot of elderly people in care homes. At least they had the grace to admit that. In the UK, they were having to have court cases by the relatives of people saying, why were you discharging people who were COVID positive out of hospital and into care homes? What on earth did you think you were doing? You know, so we did anti-lockdown, really. And, and, and a lot of the other countries that had huge rates, the Italians, and well, one of the things that happened in, in Italy was that a lot, when they were about to lock down, a whole number of the staff were from Eastern Europe who didn't want to get stuck. So they headed back to Romania and Hungary in these countries. And the care homes were absolutely devastating. There was one care home in Spain where all the care staff just left. And, this, and there, were, there were a number of the residents just starved to death. That's a direct result of lockdown. And, you know, whilst everyone's running around pretending this maybe didn't happen, but we know it happened. Just so, that's just another, if you like, thing to throw into the mix. What, what did you think would happen if you discharge elderly patients COVID positive into care homes? Now, come on, what did you think was going to happen? And at that time in the care homes, the staff were told they couldn't wear masks. <laughs> Absolutely. As we, as, we, as we were in the NHS, we were told you can't wear masks when you're just yeah. going down the corridor or pushing patients about. And as soon as COVID disappeared, we were all told we had to wear masks. I mean, you know, if you wanted, to, if, you, if masks worked, you think you'd have used them, you know, at first, and then you stopped using them when it went away. But no, we didn't use them when perhaps they could have had an effect, even if they didn't. And then we started using them when there was no possibility that they would have had any benefit. I mean, it, it is like, you know, you, you, if you were to write a book on this, was probably people will, probably our books being written, you almost have to say, what should you have not done? Oh, those are all the things we did. You know, what should you have done? Oh, there's nothing that we, there is nothing there that we did. I mean, you know, even when it comes to the treatment, you know, I've banging on about vitamin D for ages. And now finally, you know, our idiotic health secretary has decreed that everyone should be getting vitamin D, even though at one point he said, well, it's absolutely useless and has no benefit. And, and then they have a study showing that vitamin D reduced deaths by 50%. It was a small study, it was on about 80 people, but it reduced deaths by 50%. Now we have vaccines showing that they might reduce infections, mild infections with COVID by 70% or 90%, and everyone's jumping up and down, down saying the world is safe. And you say, but then you dismissed this study because it was too small. Now we have vaccine studies on same size of population, and you're saying the world is saved. It's not... But, you know, if you're going to believe, that, and, and, and death is a rather more important outcome than, than an infection with COVID, which may or may not be even significant from a health point of view. I mean, it is, it is sort of what? It, it's crazy. But remember that they didn't just ignore vitamin D, even though we had papers on UV flux, vitamin D, and all that before that. I think that was a Spanish study, maybe. Yeah. Um, they the fda put out court injunctions to take down a couple of websites and those guys weren't even selling vitamin d they had written blogs about the potential importance of vitamin d and COVID, and the fda told them take down that website you're talking about vitamin d and COVID, not allowed so yeah if it's not patented etc it's not just ignored it's suppressed and you know that that's what we see it's like corporate corruption we've seen it with the statin exaggeration and all the other stuff over the years but now this year it's gone into high gear like it's sixth gear seventh gear tenth gear and it just appears that corporate and state now have finally you know been melded together into one toxic uh entity and uh, that's kind of scary because the melding of corporate and state is the definition of fascism. Uh, I used to think fascism was some crazy tin pot dictator screaming. Uh, it was a few years ago I found out the actual definition is the, the joining of corporate power, private, corporate and state power together. That is fascism. And like you couldn't get a better example than what we're seeing. I mean, the cheerleading. The vaccine trials, I stay out of the V word because you know how it is. Um, it's crazy. 
but I mean, I did back of an envelope, the cost benefit. We talked earlier about qualities, 20,000 or 30,000 for quality adjusted life year saved. You do the number to need it to treat for a vaccine, even if you say it's very effective, there's no harms, and you give it a huge amount of road. The numbers are insane. Like, they're going to cost hundreds of thousands per quality or quality adjusted life year saved on a really good day for a rushed cycle drug that could backfire. Let's be honest, it's a five year cycle. Usually this is around seven or eight months. And like the numbers make no sense. That's just the numbers. We're not complaining about autism or any of the crazy stuff or harms. Forget the harms for a moment. The numbers make no sense. And then someone said to me when I said this, they said, yeah, but it allows us to open up. I said, well, like a placebo? Ah, oh, well, no, no, because it'll help and, and people will be okay to open up. So that's good. And I said, if the numbers are absurd, then if that allows you to open up absurd numbers, then you should never have been closed in the first place. So there's no escaping the logic. You're caught in either tine of the fork. And no one cares. Your problem there, however, you're losing. You're using logic, which I have found is, is a very puny weapon uh, in, in any discussion or argument about anything like this. It, it's, it's easily overwhelmed by. Anyway, people are perfectly capable of holding two completely contradictory ideas in their head, and they don't seem to dis, sort of disintegrate like matter and antimatter when they meet. They just kind of whirl around each other, gaining in power. Um, it, it, it's. Um, you know, yes, you're absolutely right. It is, you know, uh, it, I mean, the problem is <laughs> speechless. We're, we're actually speechless at how bad this is. Anyone watching now, Ivor, Malcolm, normally, it's that bad. We're speechless. <laughs> we, we, I mean, yes, we are, because it, yeah, there comes a point where, where, where you just think, well, you know, I, I can't make anybody see any sense, even though I think I'm, and I think I'm quite good at logic. I think you're very good at logic. Yeah. And that's probably our problem. And I think we are like, uh, we're like Spock in Star Trek, where, you know, you just yeah, stop being logical. We're just going to go and all die because that's what you do. Because, you you know, and, and that, that's sort of where we are at. Uh, it, it, it has no impact. It is like, you know, I, I described um, the statin and cholesterol stuff as being, you know, if you dare to criticize, it's like firing a pea shooter, a tank, you know, it, they don't even know they're under fire. They just blunder around the, the battlefield, firing big shells in all directions. And, and they just they, they just are incapable of being penetrated. The armor of stupidity is 12 inches thick, you know, and, and, and it will, it, as you say, where are we? Uh, what can you do? I mean, I, I am more fascinated now by. With, with the cholesterol stuff is the thing that I find most fascinating is why people come to think a thing in the first place. And then how, how can you get a crack open in the, in the armor to say, well, well, how about thinking about this? Because I find that just saying, well, here's some evidence or here are the facts or mm -hmm. here are the data and here's the studies and here's all the information. It, it just has absolutely no effect at all. You you might as well, as I say, fire a pea shooter at the tank for all the impact you're having. Facts and data are useless. We're dealing here almost purely with emotions. And people jump to an emotional conclusion. And then what they do is they use their intellect to try and justify why they came to that conclusion in the first place. So 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 logic and science and facts are used to support emotions i think and mm. emotionally people have been terrified by this thing and therefore you're going to have to appeal to emotion to change it i think that that's a good point and and as an irish doctors group i mean fantastic people uh, they have a white paper out i'll send it on and i link it at the bottom of this podcast uh, but they put together the lockdown lack of evidence, which would be kind of facts, which, as you say, may not work. But then they do a much bigger section on lockdown harms. So I think what we need to do more and more, and we did quite a bit of it today, is focus on the harms of lockdown, even if they want to think 
stupidly that lockdown does save lives allow them that okay it saved some lives now we're killing a hundred times that and focus on the suicides focus on the heart attacks focus on the cancers you know focus on the socioeconomic destruction that will cause myriad forms of death um so i think you're right we'll have to focus on the harms of lockdown more and more and less beat the drum on it doesn't work even though it doesn't um but that's all i can think of but i mean yeah and i think with the i think that that is the thing is the problem is that once people feel they've occupied the moral high ground they feel they're throwing things down on you and you're trying to assault their position i think i would say is I believe my position is the moral high ground and you are the guys down there that are groveling around doing the damage. So I'm not, you know, I'm not going to accept you telling me I'm harming people. I'm not going to accept you telling me that you can't balance, you, you can't just have an economic discussion. Well, I'm not just having any economic discussion. I'm, and you and I are having a discussion that what we know is happening is that far more harm is being caused than good. And, and these people have to justify why they are harming us all. I don't have to justify why I'm not harming people. You have to tell me, why are you doing this? Are you absolutely sure? Because all I can see at the moment is economic health and social destruction from what you're doing. So you, you are the people who are doing the harm, not me. All right. That, that is my current sort of position in my head. I realized that out there, you know, they jump up and down going, we are the good guys and you're evil scum for daring to question the good that we are doing. You know, sorry, guys, get it right. You're the ones causing harm. You are the ones that did this. All right. You know, relying on modeling by people who consistently got modeling horribly wrong in all directions. You know, what are we talking about? We're talking about 1.3 million people have died in the world of COVID if that is that, that what they died of, if 7 million people died, that would be one in a thousand, all right? And that figure is 10 times less than was predicted by the modelers. So we're not even at a seventh of a tenth of what they predicted. And this has now been kicking around for about 10 months. So we would have to have... Um, whatever it is what's the, what's the seventh of a tenth times whatever oh 70 70 times 70, more right. deaths we'd have to have to 70 times more deaths and we've currently got to reach what they said this virus would do come on that and how many years are we going to give them like saying it's worse than the flu yeah we're going to count flu since the year 1912 or something then i'll get i'll give you i'll give you 500 million deaths how many have you got from covid so far you know i mean yes yeah, so if you're going to keep adding it on every year then we might eventually in about 50 years get somewhere near the death rate that they're going for. But at the moment, and as we enter a second year, they are miles off. Their predictions were ridiculous. They've always been ridiculous. And, 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 and no one's calling them out on this sufficiently currently. And that's the problem. No one's calling them out because everyone's kind of gone mad together. And there's a, we won't get into it, but there's a heavy corporate involvement. So the people don't realize that they're, ideology because there's nothing to do with science clearly their ideology that they're right about lockdowns that's been spoon fed to them from a system that let's be honest everywhere through the system are the tendrils of corporate and pharmaceutical at every level i mean the who is so engaged with pharma it's just a joke and the other organizations they're all inextricably tied together in a kind of a Gordian knot and uh, that's where the advice is coming from it's kind of coming from an epicenter that's kind of the nexus of pharma and uh, and unelected non-democratic bodies I think would be fair to call them and that's flowing down and then all the governments in the countries are doing their own madness and getting tied up in a complete cycle we described so the people here hmm, we're in the same sort of situation as the you know the, the aviation authorities were in the states where essentially they handed over safety to boeing and said you know we don't have the resources you can you can decide how safe your airplanes are and let us know uh, you know and surprise surprise a couple of them hit the ground at 500 miles an hour 
and then they finally realize, you know what, actually maybe we shouldn't let commercial organizations decide on how safe their products are. Because they have, you know, the FDA is 70%, I think it's 70% funded by the pharmaceutical industry. And there's a revolving door whereby if you've worked in the, you know, in the FDA, you then end up being a non-executive director of Pfizer for the next five years, earning earning a million dollars a year. Well, clearly you're not going to be in that position if you are highly critical whilst you're in in role. I mean, this is, is you know, it's is actually David Cameron in, in, in said before he came in that you know, um, lobbying and, and lobbyists are the greatest issue for for democracy that has to be tackled. That was whatever, 12 years ago or however long ago it was. Yes, we do have a terrific problem here on our hands. And I don't think that that can be seriously questioned. That, that yes, there is far too closely a relationship between, between the commercial. I mean, even you go back to 1950s, Eisenhower said the greatest problem facing Western democracy is the, um, is the industrial um, arms complex to which you, you would now add pharmaceutical industry is these three these they are they have enormous power you're right and, and and of course you end up sounding like a conspiracy theorist if you say this but you know the the, the lobbying that goes on on behalf of these organizations the, the amount of money that they spend whining and dining and supporting um politicians means that there is it's impossible not to see that there is a gigantic bias going on here and you're right organizations like the wealth health world health organization, whilst they seem to hold themselves up as the purest of pure, are enormously dependent on, on, uh, on financial support, um, commercial financial support. So, you know, in, in the UK, if you are given the, the definition of a financial bribe is five pounds. Five pounds is considered enough money to constitute a bribe. <laughs> so what do you think? five million pounds might constitute or 50 million or however much these com companies are doing. This is, and they want results for that money. They are not just giving it because they like giving money to the World Health Organization or the Food and mm -hmm. Drink, Drug Administration. They are giving that money for a pure commercial reason, which is to have decisions made in their favor. And anyone who doesn't accept that is living in a strange cloud cuckoo land. So you're right. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I you stay away from the V word. I stay away from the fascism word because the moment you use that word, everyone rushes around. But you know, the, the power of commercial organisations to distort what what should be independent organisations such as the World Health Organisation or governments themselves has become a real issue that needs to be tackled. And if this is a wake up call for that, then we should all be happy. Yeah. Though I think this thing has become so insane. Yeah, that, um, yeah, sadly, I don't want to be negative, but they've gone past the point of wake up call e even now. And you know what we might, I know we need to close, bring it to a close and we're going to check back in in a while, I think. But I mean, I had an analogy just to think of this thing overall. My analogy was skipping a stone because people found it hard to grasp that, a virus comes in new, you've got a lot of immunity in the population because of T-cell and cross-immunity with proteins of other coronaviruses. So it's not surprising that 80% of people exposed to a symptomatic person in the early studies, nothing ever happened to them. So you've got this huge reservoir of, of de facto immunity against this new one. But for the ones who are affected, in fairness, a new virus causes a big spike in northern European regions. I know it gets different than others. And then it comes down completely for the summer. Uh, and that's the trigger to bring in mandatory masks, as we said, <laughs> when nothing's happening. But anyway, it comes down in the summer by itself, nothing to do with lockdowns or masks or distancing. And in the winter, you get a resurgence. But the resurgence never is like the first hit for obvious reasons because now you've got more immunity and you've got the passing of the susceptible so less people to have an impact so you get a smaller bump more like prior years let's say and then after that bump by the time you get to the next season you're down to kind of almost in the noise probably be another virus 
So I liken it to a stone skipping. Often when you skip a stone hard, you get your first big bounce, second bounce very disappointing, and then you're down to the little bounces. So the irony is they're gonna bring in their magic fix for the problem, kinda when it's mostly gone, which is next spring, which is just ironic beyond belief that they would, they would do all this mask stuff and lockdown stuff and do all the damage we said with this idea in their heads that they'll get to a magic fix. But the magic fix by definition comes too late to fix the lion's share of the problem. It's done. Well, that. Not, well yeah, that's, that's the old thing is of uh, the guy that sounds the horn and every morning and someone says, why are you sounding the horns? Keep the lions away. You ever seen any lions around here? I said, well, it's working, isn't it? <laughs> You know, um, Mine, yeah, tiger horn lunacy. So we live in a post-scientific age, Malcolm. Um, we did, but but this year, yeah, I in my lifetime, there's nothing comparable. I know we had all the statin madness and all the kind of bias in science and the eat badly plate funded by nutrition companies and food companies. And all of that was anti-scientific, of course, but it all seems almost quaint now. Almost like it was kind of okay. It was kind of a good old-fashioned, you know, battle between science on our side and the pharma guys and the food guys and the other. It almost seems like, like it, was, it was okay. It was evenly matched. But now this year, like, it's like that multiplied by 50, almost. Yeah, it was like they, they brought their big brother along with a gun. <laughs> a big gun. A, big... <laughs> a tank. <laughs> well, yeah. well, we're firing peas at each other. Yeah, yeah. A freaking tank rolls in. Yeah, we're, we're using rolled up newspaper to whack each other. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and there's a big, well, on the tank is a lot of branding. All the usual suspects, branding, WHO crest, you know. Mm -hmm. It's all branded all over. Yeah. <laughs> Here, we'll come back to it. And let's just hope for the sake of the population health to get serious again. And the horrific blood on their hands that somehow some sanity returns in the coming month or two. Um, we can but hope. Well, Oliver, you're doing a good job out there. There's people paying attention. There's obviously people attacking you in there. And uh, what's the phrase? If the flak is at its greatest, you know you're over the target. So, so keep flying round and round at the moment because you're definitely, uh, you're definitely <laughs> over the target, uh, even if you might end up getting blown to smithereens by so doing. Yeah, yeah well, no, you too, Malcolm. God, you've been fighting for so long now. But again, you know, I have five kids. I've worked for eight years in population health to prevent heart attacks. Same as you. We work for population health. This thing is as we described. So you don't have a choice in the matter. You stand up when an outrage like this is being perpetrated. You never want to look back and say, you know, I kind of kept quiet. Yeah, you can't live like that. Not if you have ethics and a conscience. So there you go. Well, great. Thanks a lot, Malcolm. And uh, yeah, we'll swing back and we'll see in a couple of months. <laughs> if we're still, I'll come to your funeral anyway. <laughs> you won't be allowed to there's only five and my family <laughs> sorry okay <laughs> but but i appreciate the thought okay good luck thank Cheers. you bye now well guys if you want to see all of the facts from the top experts come out in a movie that's entertaining and explains everything then hopefully you can support us on our kickstarter myself and donal o'neill if you enable us through kickstarter the link is tinyurl, the COVID chronicles, all one word. And here's the trailer. So again, we can't do it if you don't help us to do it. Thank you. Welcome to the Fat Emperor podcast. I'm your host, Ivor Cummins, a biochemical engineer and root cause specialist. When Imperial College London suggested that in the UK, 510,000 people could die from COVID-19, that got my attention. My numbers were about one-tenth of those numbers. What was the virus? Where did it come from? 
Was it really this dangerous? If a new virus comes, let's decide whether it's really new or not. As data became available, my suspicions were raised and I began to dig deeper. It's not fair to call it a new virus. This is the biggest single challenge this country has faced since the war. Why were the WHO pandemic response guidelines ignored by political leaders? Why did they lock us down? And what happens next? We were always, when we hit September, going to start seeing a rise in cases. That's the nature of seasonal illnesses. It's inevitable you're going to see more SARS-CoV-2. Um, but the big question is, do you see a disproportionate and exceptional increase in excess respiratory mortality over prior winters? The main strategy would have been to protect the vulnerable people. My COVID diary charts the rise of COVID-19 and my search for evidence-based answers in the midst of the madness. In science, truth always wins.